Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. I'm getting some fantastic feedback about the podcast and the fascinating guests I've spoken to. It's great to hear that you're enjoying it, and it would be wonderful if you could write a little review of it on Apple Podcasts, as not only does that please the algorithms, but it also looks great for any possible future guests I contact, as it shows that people are listening. As ever, subscribing to and rating the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on is much appreciated, as that encourages the algorithms to push it to more new listeners. Spreading the word by the traditional methods of... uh, telling people about it, is also much appreciated. Thank you. You can find me and learn more about the projects I'm working on at robertlaymusic.co.uk and I'm on social media as Robert Lane Music. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with novelist, screenwriter and journalist David Quantic. Hi David, how are you? Very well Robert, how are you? Nice to speak to you. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Enjoying the sunshine but from inside because we don't have a garden or anything where we live to do our uh, meeting with friends that we can possibly now do. So just <laughs> looking at it through a window, how about you? What sort of situation are you in at home? Have you got plenty of space to enjoy the great outdoors or not? Yeah, we've got a house and a garden and a dog and some children, not in that order. So <laughs> it's not too bad here. There's a park down the road. Um, yeah, we've had worse days, had worse <laughs> months, had worse years. <laughs> and how has lockdown actually affected work for you then? Because I'm I'm imagining that working from home is not exactly a completely new idea for a professional writer. No, I mostly work from home anyway. I don't really go anywhere for work purposes apart from maybe once or twice a fortnight. Hmm. So the only difference is there's more people in the house because people are normally, you know, my house is normally at school or their own place of work. But, yeah, it's not a great deal different. Um, most of the things I was working on weren't going to start until the summer anyway. So I'm quite lucky in that department. That's cool. I was going to ask, actually, what does a perfect writing setup look for you? What are the conditions that that really um, lead to you being able to come up with some good stuff? Well, there isn't really a perfect one. I believe you can write in any situation short of a fire <laughs> and probably during a fire as well. I never really understand it when people say, oh, I need to have this or that to write. You need to have a phone or a computer or a pen to write. And everything else is um, by the by, really. And do you find that then fairly easy to, to sort of tune out of the distractions that could be happening around you? Or are they part of the the inspiration, actually, for ideas? Um, I need quiet of ideas, I think. I just go for a walk let my mind run free. But when I'm actually working, it's no more distracting than if you're building a table to have something going on. Interruptions are annoying because they, well, they interrupt. But, yeah, I could probably, you know, I used to be a music journalist, so I had to work when a band was actually on in a crowded room. Mm. So, yeah, too much quiet is bad. That would be my only thing, too much quiet. And actually, that was interesting talking about your your sort of startings out as a music journalist. Am I right in thinking that that came about through writing to the enemy and telling them they were crap, basically? 
Yes, I read an edition of The Enemy, which had an article about a singer called Bob Seeger, who I like now. But at the time, I thought he was out of date, so I wrote to them and said, Bob Seeger is not enough. <laughs> and I went on for about a whole page of A4, or Fool's Cap, and the editor wrote back to me. So I must have included my address and invited me to come in. So I did and started writing for him. <clears throat> Never looked back. And is it a similar story? I've heard with Spitting Image as well, that it was a matter of submitting stuff and being persistent that stuff got on. Well, I just sent them three sketches and they liked one of them and used it straight away. And it didn't really lead to anything <clears throat> because writing sketches is, well, like anything where you just write short stuff, you have to take the next step. If you're writing stories, you have to write novels. If you're writing sketches, you have to write scripts or shows and start submitting them. <clears throat> and I didn't really have the confidence or the ability to do that at the time. Mm. I was just reading the start of your book, How to Write Everything, where you, you make the point that you have written in various styles and various formats. How easy is that to sort of change between? So the first time that you move into fiction, was that a difficulty? Did you have... Because I'm a, a music writer and an actor, as in a musician and an actor, and I'm in this lockdown period where I can't do some of the things I'd normally do. I'm thinking, well, there's other bits of writing I'd like to do, and I'm trying them, but there's this little voice in the back of my head that says, what are you doing? You know, you can't write a short story. You write songs. What, how dare you? Who's going to be interested? As if I've got any right to be writing songs in the first place anyway. But I wondered, when you've transitioned into a different type of writing, have those thoughts been there, or have just carried on regardless? Um, yeah, there's a large, there's a small element of that, to be honest. But if you want to do it, then you can do it. I mean, it's only writing. It's not saying, oh, I'm a brain surgeon. I think I can fly an aeroplane. <laughs> you know, it's still writing. And writing is something that everybody does because anyone, everybody at some point tells a story, even if it's only lying about where they were last night. Mm. Everybody's used to constructing a narrative, even if it's only telling somebody what you were actually doing or describing your circumstances on a phone. Mm. So, I mean, it can be annoying sometimes when you want to sell something and you've moved on. You know, I used to, when I started comedy writing, I used to get, uh, I go on radio shows and people describe me as a music journalist, David Quantic, and everyone would be like, well, what's he doing on this show? Mm. And now that I'm trying to be a novelist, it's, I can imagine people being a bit confused when they're like, David Quantic from such and such comedy show, they're like, well, what? wouldn't buy his book because he writes sketches. So it's more an outside perception. But <clears throat> comedians write, writers do comedy, journalists write, writers do journalism. It's all linked. I mean, that was, as you say, the whole point of how to write everything, mm. that if you write any, everything, you can write anything. And I often do. Do you have favourites then at this point? Favourite what? Forms to write in, favourite genres or... or? things to write um i like writing novels a lot because you can do loads in a novel and they're longer mm. and i like writing film scripts i haven't had any films made but <clears throat> i like yeah i like telling stories writing stuff i suppose the things that things that people think are a lot of effort are the least effort because when you write a novel or a film script you're writing an awful lot of stuff but there's only one idea when you're writing sketches you've got one idea it lasts a minute so it's really boring to have to write endless, endless new ideas. Mm. You know, most great novels are one idea. Most great films are one idea. Most sketch shows are 60 ideas. <laughs> so writing a sketch show is hard. Yeah, <clears throat> and the turnaround is so fast as well. 
and you don't have a very long time to, unless you're doing, I guess, a sort of character uh, catchphrase type of thing, you don't have very long to establish characters. Well, even then, the situation is that you get bored writing the character because once you've written 10 sketches where somebody says, oh, my trousers are on fire or whatever their catchphrase is, <laughs> it's just, I I know the writers of Father Ted. And I remember in the, they were saying when they were doing the third series that it was like right, it was like pulling teeth because mm. it was such a small setup, you know. In Father Ted, all that happens is every week a priest comes to stay. <clears throat> You've got four characters, and there's not much you can do with them. Mm. You can't make them do weird things or go on holiday, so it's very hard. And that sort of initial hustle that got you started in writing with the enemy and the music journalism. Does that hustle continue now when you're you're doing things, or are you are you at a position where you're asked and commissioned to write things? I guess it's a, a kind of mix, perhaps. Sometimes you're asked to, to pitch things or to help work on pitches, but there are very few examples for me where I get asked to work on a show. Um, I've been very lucky and done a lot of Armando Unucci shows, and that's amazing. But yeah, you're always pitching, and it just gets quite wearing after a while. Mm. You know, sometimes I think it'd be nice to have a job where you go into work and you don't have to go, hey, I've got a great idea for running a bank or I've got a great idea for teaching. It's just constant, you know, every day people have amnesia and they don't know who you are and they don't know what you've done and you constantly have to remind them. And it's very annoying. <laughs> I can imagine. And I think that's be very interesting for someone listening in who's kind of at the start of their career or even thinking about this kind of stuff that someone even with a pre- proven track record still has to be knocking on those doors and making themselves heard but i guess that's that's the way of creative things isn't it people don't know something is good until it's it's proven to them it never ends <laughs> you said that very warily it never ends so what was what's the what are you on at the moment are you are you pitching new ideas you say you're working on a you have a novel coming out in a month or this next month is that right that I've seen on Amazon? Um, it's been moved to July, yes. I've written a science okay. fiction horror novel called Night Train, which is about a woman waking up on a train and having lots of very unpleasant adventures. And I enjoyed writing that. And that's coming out in Britain and America. And in the old world, they're probably doing, I would have been doing some festivals to promote it, but they've yeah. been cancelled. Um, I'm just writing ideas for other people, trying to write book ideas and script ideas. Um, yeah, one thing about the lockdown is I've written an awful lot of stuff and now I'm just a bit fed up with it because it's like throwing things out of a window and not knowing where they land. Mm. You know, people aren't <clears throat> answering emails because they're not at work or because they've got other concerns. And even if they are answering emails, there's nothing they can actually do. So you just put it in a mental drawer for when all this is over. And then, of course, there'll be a massive flood yeah. of everybody in the world submitting work. That's it. And yeah, in this sort of pause where things aren't being made. But I, I imagine people are still planning things pretty far ahead in terms of commissioning stuff and, and getting new ideas. Oh, yeah. But I learned the other day that um, there's so many factors at the moment. You know, people want to make stuff. Mm. But the insurance is a problem because the insurers won't insure anybody because they don't trust anybody not to get ill. Um, um, and it's like, how do you, people are assuming that there won't be a horrible second wave or third wave or another pandemic, but at this stage, nobody really knows. You can't, it's very, people are saying, yes, we'll start filming now. Mm. We'll start casting now. But everything's very uncertain. It is. And it's that uncertainty that's kind of 
quite scary, really, isn't it? And it, it's interesting to kind of speculate how it's going to change a lot of things, particularly film and TV. Um, obviously, the the printed word and all that can continue almost through, as you mentioned, through fires, almost through any disaster. Hopefully, people will still be reading books. But in terms of actually making stuff where people have to stand next to each other, it's yeah. tricky, I guess. Uh, or certainly, you know... I was hearing people talking about the soaps and stuff, you know, how are we going to have fights and love scenes and all this sort of stuff when we've got to be two metres apart the whole time? And I get, it's further than that. It's everything. Like it's meetings, makeup. How does makeup work when you can't be anywhere near each other? Well, I suppose we're giving people makeup bags, apparently. Okay. So, okay. People are adding to their their skills even more, so the actors are in their own makeup was the first interest. For this podcast, I've spoken to a few, you know, well, quite a few people, and I generally get a little bit nervous before I talk to someone, and there's been a couple of people who felt like a really big deal to talk to, and it's quite interesting. And the other day I had an email conversation with the agent of someone, which is great, that it's a possibility that I might speak to them, and then afterwards I thought, if I have to speak to this person, I'll probably shit my pants a little bit. And then I was thinking about your music journalism days and some of the people you were meeting and interviewing. I was reading your, um, I think it's a Q magazine interview with David Bowie, in like 1999, something along those lines, and I know he's a big hero of yours. How did you approach something like that? You know, trying to trying to be interesting when you're meeting these people, ask questions that haven't been asked five million times. Would you get nervous of meeting them? Oh yeah, it was very nerve wracking. But I'd interviewed lots of people before, um, and you just find it hard to believe that it's happening. But with an interview, if you're interviewing someone that you really like. Obviously, you try not to come over gushy. Um, that would put them off. But the advantage of interviewing someone that you really like is that presumably you know a lot about them. Mm-hmm. So when people like that are interviewed, you know, I think he'd just come off a day of interview. So he would have met people who didn't know much about him. He would have asked silly questions. I was from the British rock magazine Q, which mm-hmm. he knew and liked. So he was relaxed. And he was one of those people who's very good to interview. You know, I generally find the more successful somebody is, the more friendly they are. It's basically only losers who don't get anything who are rude to you. Mm. Get more and more embittered as nobody wants to interview them. Yeah, I mean, I think I've sort of found that with some of the musicians and people that I've worked with, the ones who are tricky and not very pleasant are the ones who don't actually have all that much going for them. Whereas the very talented people generally tend to be quite friendly and happy to chat, depending on the circumstances. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a couple of people who aren't. We make a big thing out of being a bit unfriendly like Nick Cave. Um, mm. Just a bit tedious, really. Who would have been someone that you met where you, did, <laughs> you didn't come across that well, perhaps because you were nervous of meeting them? Are there any of those or not? Well, not so much nervous. I mean, when, when I started off, I did some terrible interviews just because I'd never done them. But I remember interviewing Susie Sue, Susie and the Banshees, mm. and it was a bad interview just because... I decided to tell them that I didn't like their album. I don't know why I did that. It's the kind <laughs> of thing you keep to yourself. Because I didn't realise then that an, an interview wasn't a fight between a journalist and someone. An interview is where you try and find out what somebody is like from your point of view mm. and and have a conversation with them and try and bring stuff out of them, not make them close down instantly and look miserable, which is exactly what they did when I interviewed them. <laughs> I'm interested to know sort of your reflections on how 
writing, particularly for TV and radio and the book world as well, how that has changed? Because obviously I speak to a lot of musicians and stuff and the whole music world has obviously been through this huge um, earthquake of everybody expecting music for free and, and sort of the way that musicians interact with that and what they do about it. What's been the difference from your point of view in terms of getting stuff made and, and getting stuff sold and watched or consumed over your career? I mean, music. Well, with all of it, you know, if sort of getting stuff written for TV and radio or getting it kind of actually getting something actually made, has that become more difficult, less difficult as time's gone on? Um, I honestly don't know because I've never really had anything made. You know, if you're asking me on a personal level, some things are easier, some things aren't. In terms of other stuff, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, we kept being, we were told about 10 years ago that. Free downloads have destroyed the music industry, but they mm. banned those. Mm. Uh, the music industry survived. We're told that Spotify is killing artists. Um, I think there's always, I think that we've lost a mid-level maybe. You know, it used to be loads of really famous people, loads of people who weren't famous at all. And there was a huge middle ground, people who mm. could make a career <clears throat> out of having maybe an album in the top 50 and doing some shows. And I think that's changed, but I have, literally have no idea. People still, you know, I mean, one big area that things have changed is that concerts now, unfortunately, are outdoors and people go outdoors to consume loads of bands mm-hmm. <clears throat> when it used to be staying indoors to go and see one band they really liked. Mm. And I hate festivals, so I don't think that would be much fun for anybody. Yeah, the idea of being in a, a massive crowd at something like Glastonbury has never quite appealed to me. Plain to one, maybe, but sort of being in... Well, even those- then, it's just... Yeah, I mean, playing to a big audience is fun, but playing to an audience who knows you mm. is might be more fun. I don't know. I just hate the the, low, the look of Glastonbury, all them people with their banners, because they're not really here to see you. They're here for a good time, which is great, but uh, I think that's a big difference. There's been a lot, there's a massive loss of live venues in capital cities, probably more to do with rates and the music business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's had a big effect. It's much harder to make a living doing that now, playing on the club circuit. As for sales and stuff, I don't know. You know, Ed Sheeran seems to be doing all right. Mm. So I guess at the top end, it's not affected much. And how about in terms of um, writing then? So is it harder to make a living, do you think, as as a writer of novels and books than it might have been in the past? It sort of feels as if it might be easier to get things made because you can get them made for yourself. But finding an audience, basically there's a lot of noise that you're competing with. Yeah. Uh, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, the more distractions they are, the less books itself. But, you know, the world is technology-led, not content-led, which means that as long as people like Kindles, which they do, mm. books will do well. You know, people read, people read in non-paper mediums now. And that's a good thing. They listen to books, they download them, they watch, they get them on iTunes, things like that. It's just different methods of delivery. Um, I don't really know book sales, but big names do. You know, I mean, the 1960s books sold more because there was nothing else to do. Exactly. <laughs> you sort of embraced quite a few of the new technologies, it seems like. So you did a, was it a crowdfunded, self-published type of book for one of the novels? 
Yeah, the, the first one, the mule was done with Unbound, who were crowdfunders, and that was great. <clears throat> I had enough friends to get it published, and it got some publicity and got reviewed in some papers. Mm. Um, it didn't sell anything, but it gave me a bit of confidence to write another book, so I did. Was that the first novel, then? That was the first one that got published. I wrote okay. three or four that didn't get published. I put one on Amazon um, as a, a payable download because some people liked it. So, yeah, it's been step by step, really. That's, yeah, and how have you found those sort of things then? So publishing through Amazon and then the crowdfunding as compared to your more recent novels, which I think have been through a more traditional publishing method. Is there a is is there a preference? Did you do the the crowdfunding because that was the only option available at the time, or did you find it more interesting? Well, again, it really depends on the on the people. Um, I liked Unbound and the people at Unbound, but I'm currently published by Titan, and they're really nice people. Um, the Unbound method is good; you get half the profits. That's massively useful. Mm. But they don't have a massive worldwide publicity machine behind them, even though notionally they've got King Penguin or someone behind them, and so do Titan. Um, it just depends. Basically, the problem with doing it yourself is you have to do it yourself. Mm. If someone else does it, they want more money. But um, <clears throat> they work harder for you. I like Titan, who I'm with. I don't have a lot of experience with other publishers, but I like them a lot. So, And talk about the biographies that you were, you did earlier on as well. The, so there's quite a few um, biographies of rock musicians. You wrote a book about the white album were they commissions or were they sort of projects that you were you had a passion for and got them started? um i did some small level music books they were commissions and they were very easy to write because they were mostly discographies with mm. bits of writing the white album book was a commission in a series but it was something that i really wanted to do and was quite a personal thing and the only biography i actually wrote um, was eddie Izzard's, mm. which was originally going to be a picture book by the photographer Steve Double, but it kind of expanded. So there was some of Steve's photos, but a lot of it was me interviewing Eddie and writing up what he said. Mm. And that was a lot of fun to do. Um, I was going to do, I've been approached to do biographies of other people, music acts, but I haven't done them because it's too much effort. And when you're writing about Eddie, would I be writing thinking that that was someone that you actually knew as opposed to kind of just a, a figure of a famous person? No, I hardly knew anything oh, about okay. him at this point. I think I'd been to see him once and very much enjoyed it. Um, and then Steve approached me and said, oh, you seem to have enjoyed that gig. Do you want to do the writing? So that kind of made it better in a way, because if you know nothing, sometimes it's the opposite of David Bowie. If you know nothing about somebody, mm. it gives you more of an incentive <clears throat> to talk about it. And there wasn't anything about Eddie in the media at the time. He was well known you know, he hadn't done any movies. He was well known as a stand-up, but he was never on telly apart from that. And he just wasn't a known quantity. His life story wasn't that well known. And he was on the way up as well, so there wasn't that much celebrity story to tell. So that was fun to do. Have you managed to find sort of enjoyment in all the writing projects that you've done? Or have there been a couple you don't have to name them that were, you know, hard work because someone asked you to do it and it was a bit of a slog to get through it? There's been times I've worked for people where it's been boring and mind-numbing um so generally that's where you have to do stuff other than writing where you have to do research or whether you've got somebody uh -huh. saying <clears throat> oh you can't do this or you can't do that 
um, for a variety of reasons. The broadcaster might not want certain things mentioned, or there might be just restrictions because of age or audience. Those are generally quite annoying jobs. Um, but no, most of the writing I've done has been, I've been very lucky because it's comedy. It's, you know, it's by and large trying to make people laugh, and that's not too bad. And you'd mentioned doing quite a bit of work with Armando. Am I right in thinking you wrote one of the, what I think must be one of the best couple of minutes of comedy of the last couple of decades, which is the Star Wars bit in the thick of it? Yes, I did write that. That was um, really lucky. I was walking the dog <laughs> and I just started imagining what it would be like to take the piss out of Star Wars by describing it without mentioning Star Wars. <laughs> And then <clears throat> we got sent the script, and it's like, basically, we need a few lines from Malcolm Tucker here to explain to Ollie the concept <clears throat> that he is trying to get over. And I suddenly thought I could shoehorn this Star Wars monologue into this script. So I did. And one of my favourite memories is being at a read-through where Peter Capaldi, who was Malcolm Tucker, and Chris Addison, who was Ollie, Mm. read the scene and they were laughing and that just I was so happy there was a moment I thought it had left the script but I thought well at least I've got that memory and then when I watched the program and it went out yeah it's the thing I look probably the thing I like best one minute of television that I've written yeah it's incredible and that's a quite a good lesson isn't it in this idea of ideas are really great because you never know when they might find the right home it could be could be years but there's going to be an opportunity where that idea just from when walking the dog might find the right place exactly and in that circumstance then when you're writing for somebody else's characters that seems like quite an interesting uh mind game really how does how does that work is that easy is it difficult you're sort of taking somebody else's yeah someone else's character and, and finding their words as opposed to a character that you've invented well it's easier really because writing your own characters, you're going, oh, I'm not sure about this. I, you know, you may not think, you may not have got your character quite solid in your mind yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but writing somebody else's characters, it's really easy because you're just going, oh, yeah, I know who that is. Um, yeah, writing Malcolm Tucker. Loads of people have written Malcolm Tucker already. Writing your own characters, um, they often go a bit wobbly, and you see this in a script sometimes a character says something that they wouldn't say in real, they wouldn't say, or they act in an odd manner because the writer hasn't worked out who the character is properly yet. Mm. You see that in very early episodes of sitcoms sometimes. The character hasn't quite crystallised. So they're writing other people's character. It's why people, there's, apart from the money, it's why there are so many Sherlock Holmes novels or James Bond stories because everybody knows those characters and it's really easy to write. Everybody knows that if James Bond was in a bath with a woman, you wouldn't say, please get out of my bath. <laughs> That's it. And there's something to hang those characters on. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it before. And, of course, the performance adds a lot into that. Um, You know, that sort of – it's a classic thing with sitcoms, isn't it, that series two, they base the characters a bit more on how the actors are. And you sort of get this magic of the performance and the writing all hitting each other, which you can't do until you've seen the actor doing it, I suppose. Well, I mean, that's very important and famously – a show I like, The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, mm. when David Nobbs wrote it, he had Ronnie Barker in mind for the oh. lead character. So he's writing the first six episodes with Ronnie Barker in his head, and Ronnie Barker doesn't want to do it. 
Reggie Byrne, Leonard Rossiter comes in and David Nobb has got to write the second series with Leonard Rossiter in mind, who he's now seen play it. So yeah. that's got to have a massive effect. Leonard Rossiter's mannerisms and tics being very different to Ronnie Barker's. Absolutely. And it can change so much as well, a performance, can't it? Because actually thinking about how incredible Ronnie Barker was, but that character is is Leonard Rossiter in my mind. So it's, you know, it's it's hard to pull those things away, isn't it, sometimes a performance from a character? It's very interesting um, when you read Reggie Perrin, the novel it was based on too. Um, it's very dark. It's quite dour. So Ronnie Barker playing him could have been quite bleak. Whereas Leonard Rossiter gave him a kind of a manic edge, mm. which the character really needed. So, yeah, there we go. Writing is a collaboration. It is, isn't it? Because I think it's easy to think of the writer kind of sat alone in his in his lonely garret coming out with all these ideas. But even when you're writing something solo, it is always a collaboration. Um, what's that like? The first time you show a new thing to somebody, whether it's, I don't know, an editor, agent or whatever, when you have to sort of kill your darlings like that, is that something you enjoy or is it quite painful? Well, basically, by and large, nobody likes having their work altered. Um that said, if you've got a good editor, generally when they say something, you think, yeah, I kind of knew that. Mm. If they say, you know, that scene doesn't work or this character's unconvincing. If you're a good writer, and there's a good person who does writing, then you should be able to accept that rather than stomp around the room saying you're fired. So, yeah, I mean, I like editors. I liked them when I was a journalist and I like them when I write books. And I don't, and I like script editors because generally they know what they're doing and they make what you're doing better rather mm-hmm. than worse. Have you been on the other side of that? Have you edited stuff for other people? I do it a lot. I get sent a lot of unsolicited scripts by people. Well, people email me and ask if they can send me scripts. Mm. And, yeah, sometimes I'll do detail, re- detail, go through it very thoroughly, and sometimes I'll <clears throat> we'll just have a superficial look. But it's fun to do because it's a bit like a maths problem. You're like, oh, how can I make this better? Hmm. What would I do if I'd written this? And you think, well, maybe I'd change that. And again, it's interesting when you meet people who are going to be writers. One way of telling someone who isn't going to be a good writer is somebody who goes, well, that's not right. It's like you asked me for my opinion. Hmm. You know, if somebody says, okay, fine, and they're really pissed off, <clears throat> fair enough. You know, I've often been pissed off. When they argue with you, it's like, why? You've got toothache. You don't go to the dentist and go, but actually that's not the tooth or or whatever. Mm. So don't argue with script editors would be my advice. (laughs) You don't have to do what they say, but don't tell them they're wrong. (laughs) Well, that's again, if any creative thing, that's the side of it, isn't it? It's, it it is a a choice. A lot of the time you might like something that someone else doesn't like. And that's hopefully you're going to get to a, a compromise that works, I suppose. But I'm imagining you don't like everything that's ever been written and you don't like everything that ever gets made, but, you know, somebody does. Oh, yeah. And, and you can't you can't argue with success in the literal sense of that phrase, you know. It's very hard. Somebody got, somebody's enjoying it. It's very hard to say, but it's rubbish. Mm. It's like, well, if it's rubbish, why is it so popular? And I loathe people who go, well, pop, you know, it's successful because rubbish is popular. Mm. You know, it's, you have to be crap to be famous, really. Well, that's interesting then. What would be your definition of success for something that you've you've written? Well, there's loads of levels, aren't there? The number one is that you wrote what you wanted to write. 
um, which sometimes happens. Number two is that you didn't write what you wanted to write, but it turned out better. Mm. So that's a bonus. Number three is that it was really successful. Number four is that people you respect liked it. And uh, number five is all of those things at once. You know, so in that sense, there's lots of options. Mm. And with things that you've worked on that have been like mainstream successful, have they surprised you? Did you know when things were going to take that extra level or is it always a bit of a, is it hard to know when something's going to have those kind of legs? Well, when I worked on on the hour, Armando's first radio show, <clears throat> I didn't think it was going to be a flop, but I was surprised when it was so massive just because I didn't know very much about radio at the time and I hadn't realised how original the show was. Um, but by and large, I have no idea if things are going to be successful or not. I'm generally sort of a bit too much in the middle of it to tell. And to a point, could you argue that it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't matter for a a writer? Like you've written it, someone's made it, if people like it, great. But does it make a huge amount of difference for a writer? Well, it makes a difference to your wallet and your lifestyle. Um, but yes, people obviously would rather be successful than not successful. But if it's good, I'm just happy at the stage where I'm happy that things come out. But, you know, mm. if it's good, that helps a great deal. And something that I think people listening in might find interesting as well, just saying you're happy that it, it comes out. I don't have to give you a number, but what kind of percentage of stuff which has never come out? Like what, what percentage of stuff have you not finished or you've finished and it's never found a home? Is that... Something that happens a lot? About 95%, I'd say. Wow. I've written so many scripts, so many books, so many things and so many ideas for shows that haven't been made. Um, It does give you an attitude. And when you work in areas like film scripts where things can go on for years, Mm. it doesn't take the wind out of yourselves. But when somebody goes, yay, it's being made, you're like, oh, because you don't really believe it. Okay. You know, I think people have had success early in life might feel a bit differently because, you know, they're sort of used to the door opening. Oh, I want this door to open. Oh, this door is open. Here's a golden crown. Oh, fantastic. This is how I thought it would be. But for an awful lot of people in writing, it's like, oh, none of these doors are opening. Oh, I've really got tired now trying to open these doors. Oh, it's opened. I need to sit down now. <laughs> And as you mentioned earlier, there's like there's no proven track record, is that I mean sort of getting into creative careers for me when I started, you have this naive notion that it's a upward trajectory all the time. So, you know, this year's this year's gigs have gone better than last year's or, you know, this bit of radio plays happened, whatever it is. I've been casting this film. But then you pretty soon, for me anyway, find out that's not the case and it's you could be right down lower than you were this time six months ago. How easy is that to deal with? Um, you just get used to it. You just have bad days and good days like everybody else. But yeah, it's the wheel of fortune. Sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. But you're right. There often isn't any correlation between how you feel and how you're doing. And sometimes it depends on the work you're doing rather than the way other people see it. Are you able to get yourself in a mindset where you're just appreciating what you're doing for the moment rather than where it's going to lead to, what happens to it. Oh, when you're writing it, you're in the moment. Um, yeah. If you started worrying about how successful it was going to be when you were writing it, then 
it might put you off. But equally, if you're writing something to make money, mm. you have to have that in your mind. But by and large, you just write it and worry about it later. It's like tightrope walking. You just close your eyes and hope to get to the other side. Mm-hmm. And in general, then, would you say which is easier and which do you prefer, writing to a, a commission or writing complete from a blank page? I guess that your novels must be a bit more like that. It's it's your idea and it can go anywhere that you want. So there's a great freedom to it, but then there's no signposts on the way. Well, there's different sides to the coin. I like writing for myself best of all. Um, but when you commission to write something, you know you're going to get paid at the end of it. And there is a certain challenge in writing to other people's briefs. So ideally... The perfect situation is writing your own idea and knowing you're going to get paid for it. Mm-hmm. And how how rare is that? Um, it doesn't ever happen, to my <laughs> knowledge. I feel sometimes that I've got loads of projects in my head at the same time, and part of me is wondering, is that a good idea or not? You know, should I be focusing on one thing? So, how about you? Do you are you looking at one project, or is there various things happening, and are they ideas, or are you literally writing two or three things at the same time? It's like a buffet for me. I mean, I've got friends who've worked on one idea for years Mm. and they're determined to get it done and maybe it will never get done, but they're going to try and do it. Whereas my idea is, have a bit of this and if it's not working, move on to something else then. If that's not working, do that. And it also depends if you're writing different things on the mood. Um, It's like, you think, oh, I don't really want to do this, so I'll do that instead. Mm. Or I don't feel like writing a script, I'll write a sketch or I'll write a book. I like having a lot of variety. I also write very quickly, so <clears throat> I get bored easily. Mm. Um, so I much, yeah. The idea of having one thing to do for ten years would drive me mad. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather have twenty things to do in in ten years and spend six months on them, if that. So yeah, lots of projects is great. And is a writing day because I, I know that you've written about the sort of mechanics of writing as well with the uh, how to write everything and also how to be a writer where you spoke to various other writers. Um, is the mechanics of writing that you are? Do you have office hours? Do you just write as you feel? How does it work? Does it depend on the project? Well, at the moment it's all gone mad, but um, I pretty much have to work because I've got children of school age, and for various reasons I have to work around them. Mm and my wife's schedule. So I try and have office hours, but to be honest, I only really write for about two hours a day. I Mm. tend to do massive, fast bursts of writing. Um, I set myself, it's more like word deadlines. Yeah, it's more like deadlines. If I'm writing a novel, I will try and write X amount of thousand words a day or a week so that I've got a set, set time. If I'm writing a script and nobody else wants it, I generally try and write as fast as possible, but I don't really have working hours because life keeps changing around me. Mm-hmm. And that experience of talking to other writers for your uh, How to Be a Writer book, how different are people's approaches and did you learn anything from any of them that you then changed in the way that you do things? Um, I just learned that everybody has a different approach. And obviously it depends on what you do. If you're a journalist like John Ronson, you do a vast amount of research. Mm. If you're a columnist like Susan Moore, you just have to have one idea. If you're a crime writer like Mark Billingham or Martin Waits, um, then it's a mixture. They write late at night because it's spookier. It gives them a bit of atmosphere. A lot of people write in the morning because they feel fresher and also feel that they shouldn't write in the afternoon. Everybody varies, but you know, people have got annoyed about this. I've seen in reviews on Amazon. But the answer is basically 
the only thing in common is right. Everyone just says right. And mm. everyone says, oh, it's a pretty clever thing to say. It's, yeah, but if you're not writing, you're not writing. Yeah, there's not actually really any getting past that, is there? Um, what is the reason no. for that then? Because I've heard a couple of different sort of explanations. What would you be your take on that, why you just need to do the work? People are lazy or they don't want to do it. Um, you meet people who go, oh, I'm going to do it. Oh, I just need the right moment. There isn't a right moment. Mm. You know, writing's really easy physically. Mm. As I've said before, it's like somebody goes, oh, I want to be an astronaut. There are certain obstacles in that. If you want to be a writer, you just need a pen or a phone or a computer. I don't know why people don't write because I do write. So, yeah. And what is the what is the benefit of doing that? Just sitting and doing the writing. Is it a fact of training the muscle to do it, or is it just getting the ideas out of the way till you get to good ones? Well, it's more the fact that if you don't write anything, you won't have written anything. <laughs> no, you know, bookshops aren't full of well, they are full of empty notebooks. But <laughs> yeah, if you've got an idea, it helps to write. But just writing sometimes helps. Just unblocking yourself is an exercise, but you know that's not that's kind of irrelevant, really. Mm. If you want to write, write. Just have an idea and write it, and it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. It does help if it's good, mm. but you know, just write. Sometimes with songwriting, people say that you have to get your bad ideas out of the way. So write the songs that aren't aren't amazing, get them out of the way, well, and get to you, new ones. Yeah, I mean, I've heard demos by loads and loads of bands from their early years. Mm. And you can hear them learning to write songs in a demo studio. You can hear them not realising that, you know, people like to have a verse and a chorus. Mm. So they'll have a song with nine verses on and then there'll be a middle eight, then a chorus, and it'll be chaotic. And maybe they're thinking, oh, we shouldn't be conventional. But you, yeah, it just helps to learn how to do things. And I wrote loads of not very good comedy books and I wrote biographies and things. I learned how to write a book but I didn't learn how to write a story, and that was the hardest bit. Mm. But all that writing, it's all you. Writing is one of the few things that if you keep doing it, you don't get worse. Mm. There's loads of things like playing the piano or being a plumber where you might keep doing it and never get any good. But with writing, you'll get better. If you're rubbish, you'll get better. Mm. Interesting. Tell me a bit more then about that writing books but not being able to write a story. What is that something that you now feel that you've cracked? <laughs> or how's it Yeah, changed? I couldn't write. I couldn't write long narratives. <clears throat> and I think a lot of the time I was copying the ideas of people who said, oh, you've got to plan, you've got to have a structure. Mm. And then I discovered that it was a mixture for me of not having any structure combined with a little bit. So I was overthinking it. And, you know, Stephen King, who I admire a lot, claims that he sits down without a thought in his head and starts writing the story. Mm. And I don't know if that's true or not, but... I'm not a planner, you know, I don't, I get bored. If I know what's going to happen in chapter six, I don't want to write it because I know what's going to happen already. Mm. So it goes like that, really. Fascinating. Okay, David, that's been really interesting. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Thank you, Robert. It was nice to talk to you. Just remind me, so uh, Night Train has now been pushed back to July. That's right. Yeah, cool. And if people want to find out more about you, where's the best place or the best way for them to get in touch? Uh, I've got a website called and I'm also on Twitter swearing at people so yeah Twitter being your preferred social media absolutely well, I like Facebook too but Twitter's funnier <laughs> it's yeah it's a, it's a better for a sort of short form joke thing though isn't it um, 
how much time that's an interesting one actually how much time are you allowing social media to to occupy is that a is that not a great distraction as in great as in big but not necessarily good when you're trying to write stuff no when i'm writing i go on my i go on twitter on my break mm. same as anything else you know it's equivalent to making a cup of tea in my spare time i'm probably on social media far too much on computers far too much mm. um but yeah I like I like making jokes and saying things that are meant to be funny, mm-hmm. and people won't always pay me to do those, so I put them on Twitter. It's quite a good way of kind of uh, market research as well, isn't it? That you, if something has a good reaction to it on Twitter, it might be worth holding on to for something else. I'd never thought of it that way. It sounds like quite good. <laughs> well, yeah, I know a couple of stand-ups who sort of. Uh, you know, routine their routine their routines via that because it's quite democratic, isn't it? If something amuses people, they like it and literally share it. Yeah, so you can I'll find out that. you can find out if it's good or not. Whereas something you put on there that gets no reaction probably doesn't have any reaction, I guess. Cool. It's a good practice place, yes. Okay, David, again, thank you so much. Um that's been really, really interesting. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for talking to me. Hope you have a good day. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. See you next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers podcast. If you could subscribe to the podcast, share it, like it, comment on it, review it, tell all your friends about it, all of those things would be fantastic because the more that people do that, the more that new people get a chance to hear the podcast, join the community and enjoy the content that we're putting out. You can find me at robertlanemusic.co.uk and I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Robert Lane Music. Please get in touch. Let me know if you're enjoying the programmes and who you think I should talk to in the future. Thank you. Till next time, goodbye.